I'm Gabrielle Roberts, and I'm joined by my co-host Ariana Roberts, and you're listening to Arcana Imperii. Recently was the anniversary for the breaking of the Enigma Code, which helped end the war earlier and save millions of lives. Because of the recent anniversary, we will be interviewing Thomas Briggs, the current head of learning at Bletchley Park, where we'll be talking about Alan Turing and the Enigma machine. So thank you for being on the podcast uh, to talk about the Enigma machine. What was the Enigma machine? The Enigma machine was a cipher machine that was developed in Germany before World War II started. Uh, as far back as 1923, it was being produced. And it was used commercially originally. So it was used in banks uh, primarily uh, and other commercial operations. Uh, and it's just a machine where you you type on the machine. Uh, each key that you press causes a, le- a light to light up each light is uh, placed underneath uh, a letter, so each light that lights up indicates what letter the one you're pressing should change to. Uh, that's essentially what it does, um, but it does it in a rather more complicated way than a lot of ciphers before it did. So the Enigma machine is an example of a polyalphabetic cipher. So if you press um, an E, for example, it might light up the letter Q and then you press the E again, it doesn't have to light up the same letter again. It might light up an F next time or something like that. So um, it's a lot more difficult to break than most of the ciphers that preceded it. The, the, the key thing with it is that there are lots of ways to set the Enigma machine up. In fact, you've got uh, around 103,000 billion billion different possible settings for an Enigma machine. And in order to break the code, you've got to figure out which one of those settings has been used. Just to put that into perspective, if you could try out one after the other, uh, you'd eventually get to the right one. But if you could do it quickly enough to do one per second, that would take you something like uh, three and a quarter quadrillion years, which Mm -hmm. is about 240,000 times the current age of the universe. So it would be really tough to break it that way. So did the Nazis believe the machine to be unbreakable? I think there was a lot of faith in the machine. Uh, There there wasn't a lot of belief that it could be broken. And I think a large part of that came from the way that the Nazi regime worked in that subordinates just didn't question their superiors. So if anyone did feel that the Enigma machine wasn't perhaps as secure as it could be, that message isn't likely to, to be sent up the ranks at all. So, yeah, I, to a degree, I think it's, it's probably safe to say they were, they were overconfident in the Enigma machine. Um, but on the other hand, it wasn't the Enigma machine itself, really, that most of the weaknesses turned up in. The weaknesses were, were due to the way it was used. So it was due to the users, the operators of the Enigma machine, not following procedure, but also it was due to parts of the procedure being weak. How were prior codes broken, and what was different about Alan Turing's approach to breaking Enigma? Was this the birth of modern computer science? Alan Turing's approach to, to breaking codes was prompted really by the, the, 
level of complexity of the Enigma machine itself. So, um, in, uh, ciphers prior to Enigma, prior to mechanical ciphers, uh, to a large extent, it's about trying all the possibilities and trying to find ways of getting through all those possibilities really, really quickly. But earlier ciphers, easier ciphers than, than Enigma, they have backdoors that you can get through if you know how. So uh, I mentioned that Enig the Enigma machine was an example of a polyalphabetic cipher where the letter, when you press the same letter over and over again, you get a different letter coming out each time. Before polyalphabetic ciphers, you've got monoalphabetic ciphers where each letter that you encrypt comes out as the same letter every time. And in that case, a really, really easy method that you can use is something called frequency analysis. And the, the basic idea behind it is it if you count up how many times each of the letters appears in a ciphertext, that's the encrypted message, then you find the letter that turns up most often, and then you make the guess that that's probably an E, because E's tend to turn up, tend to turn up more often than other letters. So it was systems like that, ideas like that, that allowed earlier codes and ciphers to be broken. And throughout history, you've got this battle between the ways of making codes and the ways of breaking codes. So as, as soon as somebody comes up with a new way of making a code and overcoming the previous weaknesses, uh, there's other people who are working on breaking the code and trying to find ways around the, the new uh, systems. So what Turing and everyone else at Bletchley Park was trying to do in World War II, they're trying to overcome the security of Enigma. And it's interesting, actually, that you should say, uh, did Enigma uh, prompt the birth of modern computing? Mm -hmm. And I would say, I would say no, actually. Uh, Enigma didn't um, prompt the creation of a computer. Uh, it used statistical techniques and a lot of psychology to narrow down the number of settings that needed to be checked. For example, the, the message key, sometimes called the indicator, which changed for every single message, consisted of three random letters. And uh, I think you can probably guess at what happens when somebody is asked to pick three random letters. Actually, it turns out more often uh, in, in World War II, girls' names and swear words rather than three random letters. Um, that's, that's something that's actually really, really um, pertinent today because we all have to come up with passwords. I'm sure um, you and everyone listening to your podcast has got a password to log into something, an email account or um, their phone or something like that. And we have a problem these days uh, with people making really rubbish passwords. Um, the most common password in use these days, I understand, is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, which is <laughs> kind of easy to guess. Uh, the second most common password is the word password. Other common passwords uh, include uh, things from things from movies and films and TVs and things that are popular at the moment. I think the word dragon is something like 16th or 17th most popular password at the moment. So um, the, the, the things that the code breaks that Bletchley Park were, were working on were actually very similar to the things that what we call hackers today are working on to try and break into our own uh, information. So um, yeah, they were, they were doing a lot with psychology to remove possible settings. They were finding out things that the uh, code makers, the Enigma operators were doing 
that uh, that gave clues as to what the settings might be that they were choosing, and they found out things about the procedures that helped them to narrow down which settings were being used. Uh, for example, every single day you have three rotors from a set of five that you put into the machine, and those three rotors should be randomly chosen from that set of five every every day. But they had a rule that said you weren't allowed to put the same rotor in the same place in the machine two days running. And if you know what yesterday's settings were, that gives you a clue to cut down what you need to look through to find today's settings. So after they'd managed to find ways of cutting down the number of settings they had to search through, then the possible remaining settings were tested by hand uh, using uh, uh, paper-based methods a lot of the time actually some of them involves sliding bits of paper around the table and uh, lining things up and then testing the settings that way um, Turing then took inspiration from a Polish machine called uh, the Bomber uh, that was produced to to break an earlier version of Enigma and he, he produced the bomb machine that's B-O-M-B-E uh, that was used to hammer through lots of the possible settings and try and find uh, a set of settings that might be the right ones that were then tested by a human. So it's important to note that the bomb machine is not a computer. It's an electromechanical checking machine. It doesn't do any um, calculations. It just tries things um, to see if they match up with some, with some input and then it moves on to the next one and keeps going until it finds something that's a match. Um, there was another cipher that Germany were using uh, that, that they began using in around 1941. It didn't replace Enigma, it was used for different purposes. Enigma was used for uh, low-level communications, sort of everyday stuff, and Lorentz was used for the high-level, long-term communications between Hitler and his generals. Now, the Lorentz machine has around one sex queen quagintillion possible settings. That's a big number. It's it's uh, a one with 171 zeros after it, essentially, um, which is it's significantly more than than for Enigma. That one, um, uh, what was it? 103,000 billion billion. That's nothing next to this number for Lorentz. Uh, techniques were developed fairly quickly to decrypt Lorentz messages given certain circumstances, but the processes were too long and complicated to do by hand. So a device was designed and built by Tommy Flowers' team to perform the required calculations at speed. And it doesn't just check a possible setting and move on. Uh, this machine, which was called Colossus, actually performed logical and counting operations on information that was input using paper tapes. And it is quite often thought of as the world's first programmable electronic digital computer. So that's to, um, that was invented to attack the Lorentz cipher rather than the Enigma cipher. Alan Turning once said, sometimes it is the people who no one imagines anything of who do the things that no one can imagine. Can you tell me about Turing? What was he like? What was his impact on the project and computer science? Reports of Turing um, generally are, are quite favourable. They People seem to have liked him. He was fairly shy. I remember him being described as having a, a slightly uncomfortable high-pitched laugh. Generally a, a bit slightly scatterbrained, I think, and very eccentric. Um, he, he was actually involved with the, the code-breaking operation before the Second World War started. 
So he started working with GCNCS, that's the government's code and cipher school, from 1938. And then in 1939, the Polish Cipher Bureau provided details of the wiring of the Enigma rotors at the time and their decryption methods that they'd figured out so far. So Turing, along with Dilly Knox, another person who uh, ended up working at Bletchley Park too, they started to work to develop more general methods of breaking Enigma. So uh, Turing started working at, at Bletchley Park on the 4th of September 1939, so that's a day after uh, war was declared. And throughout his time uh, with Bletchley Park during World War II, he made uh, five, arguably, major cryptanalytical advances during World War II. So the first one of those was developing a specification for the bomb machine that I've mentioned uh, already. So that mechanised his more general approach that he developed for breaking Enigma, and it was undoubtedly inspired by the Polish bomber machine that came before. And the, the design for that was also um, worked on by a man called Gordon Welshman, who is one of his colleagues at Bletchley Park. Um, so uh, that's, the, that's the first really important advance, I think. Uh, second one, he uh, deduced the method that the German Navy were using to uh, encrypt or to hide their indicator positions. So the indicator positions were the, those three letters that were used to set up the Enigma machine for each message. Uh, the Navy were using a slightly more sophisticated method and, and he managed to figure out what that method was. Uh, the third one, uh, he developed a statistical procedure for making more efficient use of bomb machines. Uh, this this method was, was known as Bambarismus and it sounds like a really posh name, but it's called Bambarismus because it used special uh, punched sheets, of hole punched piece of paper that were printed in a place nearby called Banbury. Um, uh, the fourth one, he also developed a procedure for working out the cam settings uh, for the Lorentz machine. Now, the cams were little switches on each of the wheels on the Lorentz machine that I mentioned earlier. Um, and he developed a procedure for working out what those setting, what those little switches settings were. Uh, and then that was developed into the, the process that was used by the computer Colossus later on. Um, uh, and they called that process Turingery. Uh, and then the fifth advancement he made in, in World War II actually worked at a different site called Hanslope Park, which is, is near to Bletchley, uh, but it's a, it's a different site. And he worked on a secure voice scrambler, so something where you can, um, you can talk over the radio and using your voice rather than having to, to write it as text and the enemy can't listen into it or they can't understand it if they do. That was, that was codenamed Delilah. Uh, yeah, I've mentioned that he was he was fairly eccentric. Uh, he was nicknamed Prof, and he wrote a book about Enigma and and how to break it. And that book was was known informally as Prof's book. Uh, there's also uh, reports from from one of his colleagues that uh, in the summer months he used to cycle to work in a gas mask because he suffered from. Uh, hay fever and the gas mask filtered out the pollen for him and uh, also to do with his cycling uh, his chain kept falling off his bike and he rather than getting it fixed he worked out that if he counted the number of rotations of the pedals and then back pedaled at a certain point the, the chain wouldn't fall off so he didn't need to get it fixed 
And another another slightly eccentric thing he used to do was chain his mug to the radiator in his office so that people couldn't steal his his mug. So uh, yeah, he's uh, he he's got a few eccentric things to his name. Uh, it's what a, not a lot of people realise is that actually um, he was at Bletchley Park until about November 1942, I think. So from he was at Bletchley Park from 1939 to November 1942 and he headed Hut 8 during most of that time and in November 42 he went to America to work with the US Navy on the American bomb program and he also started to assist a company called Bell Labs uh, developing uh, secure speech devices linked to the Delilah thing that he was working on at Hanslow Park as well and then in 1943 he came back to BP uh, at that point, uh, Hugh Alexander, who was another colleague of his, had, had taken over leadership of Hut 8. And uh, I think it's quite important to note that there were around 10,000 people working for Bletchley Park during World War II, and they all made important contributions. So other important names that are worth uh, looking up, but they're all worth looking up, um, but some that spring to mind include Bill Tutt, who developed much of the cryptanalysis of Lorentz, uh, Hugh, Hugh Alexander, I've mentioned, um, and uh, Mavis Beatty as well, who developed a technique for breaking part of Enigma, and she was part of Dilly Knox's team, I think. Um, Alan Turing is quite often put up on a pedestal at Bletchley Park, and that's absolutely right, but there are loads of other people who deserve to be up there with him as well. Uh, it, and you can find out more about people who worked at Bletchley Park by visiting the Bletchley Park website. It's bletchleypark.org.uk. And if you have a look for something called the Roll of Honour, we've listed everyone we know at Bletchley Park. And I think there are something like 12,000 entries in there at the moment. So there's lots of people to look up. So three quarters of the codebreakers at Bletchley Park in World War II were women. So can you talk about some of the women who had an impact on this effort? Um, a large number of the women at Bursley Park were, were RENS, W-R-N-S, which stands for the Women's Royal Naval Service. So they were, um, they were employed by the Royal Navy and they were posted to Bletchley Park. So I think a lot of them were quite disappointed that they never saw the sea um, because Bletchley Park is about as far away from the sea as you can get in, in England. They did a lot of the, the really important legwork of breaking codes. Uh, they were bomb operators and um, they were Typex operators. The Typex machine was a machine that was uh, developed to be a, a cipher machine uh, for, the, for the Allied forces, for the British, and it could be set up to work exactly like an Enigma machine. So they were actually typing these uh, encrypted messages on the Typex machines once they'd found the right settings and uh, they were getting the decrypted messages out so they were doing they were doing a lot of this like the the day-to-day -day work that really needs to be done in the background in order to to break the codes and get that information out um some there are some really notable individuals um such as maybe spatey i've always mentioned and uh, joan clark is an interesting figure as well uh if you've if you've seen a movie called The Imitation Game. She's actually featured in The Imitation Game because uh, uh, she is 
the woman who Alan Turing was actually engaged to for for part of their time at Bletchley Park. Uh, but she she was also a, a brilliant code breaker code breaker in her own right, and she went to Cambridge University at a time when women couldn't graduate. They could follow the course, but they couldn't graduate. There was no mechanism for them to graduate. And she distinguished herself by achieving at a level that was the same as her male counterparts who were who were receiving double firsts. So she was a, a pretty brilliant mathematician. And uh, despite the time, uh, she managed to make some excellent achievements. So, yeah, and again, you can find lots of different names uh, of those uh, many, many women who worked at Blessy Park on the, the role of honour. Alan Turing also stated, it seems probable that once the machine thinking method had started, it would not take long to outstrip our feeble powers. They would be able to converse with each other to sharpen their wits. At some stage, therefore, we should have to have to expect the machine to take control. True to his prediction, we saw recently Facebook shut down an artificial intelligence engine after developers discovered that the AI had created its own unique language that humans can't understand. Um, researchers at the Facebook AI Research Lab found that the chatbots had deviated from the script and were communicating in a new language developed without human input. Is this a danger? Did Turing see this both um, as a danger and a promise in AI? Uh, that's a really interesting question, um, and I don't really feel qualified to answer it. I, I did hear about that particular news story. I found it fascinating. Um, and I think uh, from what I've seen Turing write about artificial intelligence, he he was obviously fascinated by the idea and he put a lot of thought into it. And I think uh, really deep thinkers like Turing, who, who've spoken on this topic, uh, we need to heed their words. We need to be very, very careful. I don't think I don't think we're in imminent danger of AI taking over the world or anything like that. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, new technology always has its dangers, and uh, we've got to be uh, one step ahead of them, and we've got to think about what might happen. I think Stephen Hawking has some interesting things to say on the same topic as well, uh, so that might be worth looking up. Um, but I think, as well, you, you've alluded to what is probably known as the Turing test in there. So uh, Turing came up with this idea that you could spend some time talking to a computer. And if you can't tell whether it's a computer or a human being, then you can define it as being able to, in some way, think. So there are competitions these days uh, to... Get, try and get machines to pass the Turing test. So you have some, some people in a room with some computers and they spend some time talking via typed messages, instant message type thing. And they don't know whether they're chatting with a human or with a chatbot. And their task is to decide which one they're talking to. So far, I've not heard of anything that, that unequivocally passes the Turing test. But, uh, but who knows? Who knows what's going on behind closed doors? <laughs> So, what is the future of cryptography? Uh, most modern cryptography works on the basis of a really simple idea. So, types of cipher these days that are uh, based on something called RSA, uh, that, that system involves a key being produced by picking two prime numbers and multiplying them together. 
And then there's some other stuff in the algorithm as well. But essentially, you pick two prime numbers, multiply them together. Now, the result of that multiplication is publicly available. So somebody who wants to send you an encrypted message needs to know that number. So breaking your cipher, in this case, is just a matter of working out what the two prime numbers were that the other person started with. So, for example, if the number you're sharing, if the, if the result of multiplying the two prime numbers together is six, the two prime numbers you picked must have been two and three. So it sounds really easy to break, but if you pick a large enough prime number, something else comes into play. Uh, it is a mathematical fact that there's no easy way to find out what the prime factors of a number are. You just have to try everything until you find the right ones. So with small numbers like six, that's really easy. You just go through all the possible factors of six and you see which ones are prime. Pick big enough numbers though, and you've got to do lots of calculations to find the right ones. So for example, the largest known prime number at the moment, uh, as far as I'm aware, has more than 23 million digits in it. Now you imagine how many possible factors that, that number has. You've got to, you've got to trawl through all those numbers leading up to 20, uh, leading up to the digit with the number with 23 million digits in it. That is a lot of factors to check before you find the prime number. So the idea is it takes far too long to do those calculations to find the original prime numbers. So that's what makes it secure. Now, with quantum cryptanalysis, there are there have already been algorithms described that uh, take advantage of things like superposition and entanglement uh, to do those calculations in a tiny fraction of the time. So you'll be reducing the time taken to, to go through all of that process from billions of years down to minutes, which means our modern ciphers will all be useless as soon as quantum computing becomes a an actual thing that people can get hold of. Um, but it also has implications for making codes as well. So there are already algorithms that have been suggested that take advantage again of superposition and entanglement and things like that, that will not only be utterly impossible to break according to anyone's understanding so far, but that the simple act of trying to intercept the encrypted message will be made apparent to the intended recipient. So you'll be able to tell if someone is even trying to listen in on what you're saying. Uh, so I think, yeah, I, I think that's like the immediate future of uh, cryptography. Uh, well, not the immediate future. I think that's what people are working on in the immediate future is, is the quantum thing. And what happens after that? It's anybody's guess, but I think it sounds really exciting. Um, did, did Bletchley Park also help break the Japanese purple cipher? Uh, yes, I don't know too much specifically about that, but they, they definitely helped to work on breaking closing ciphers uh, throughout the Axis forces. So uh, the Japanese were using, to, to a, a small extent, they were using Enigma machines as well. So they did have a number of people working on breaking Japanese closing ciphers here. So uh, I guess the final question is, uh, do you have an Enigma machine handy? Can we hear what the machine sounds like when it's operated? Um, I, I don't have one in here at the moment, but if you give me a few minutes, I can go and get one. Oh, cool. We can, <laughs> we can, we can wait. Yeah, we can wait. Okay, I just got to pop next door, and I'll, I'll go and grab one. Hi, I'm back. I have an Enigma machine with me. Hmm. Excellent, right. So I'm going to press a few keys on the Enigma machine, so uh, let me know if you can hear it, okay? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> oh yeah. We can definitely hear it. Pretty Whoa. good, yeah. <laughs> um, that's that's a real Enigma machine, by the way. Um, <laughs> yes. It's one of the ones we use for demonstrating to school groups mostly and some other lucky people who come to Bletchley Park or book us to come out to their school or organisation. So it's a real Enigma machine. It's an army Enigma machine, so it was used in the, in the German army uh, probably during the early 1940s. And um, I'll let you into a secret. It is actually the same Enigma machine that was used in filming the Imitation Game. Oh, cool. So, have you seen the Imitation Game? Yeah, we both yeah. have. We, we saw it. Ah, right. That's, uh, um, yeah, so this is the one that was in that movie. It's actually been played with by Benedict Cumberbatch and Kieran Knightley. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh... Thank you for your time, taking the time to talk to us for our podcast and lots of interesting things that you said. Um, we certainly learned a lot. And so thanks. For... I hope so. Yeah. So thank it's you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Um, thanks very much for getting in touch. Uh, I hope, yeah, hope you've got what you want. We definitely did. Thank you. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. Wow, that was really a fascinating interview we just had with Thomas Briggs. I certainly learned a lot about um, Alan Turing and also woman's role at Bletchley. And yeah, it was quite fascinating also to hear the Enigma machine. Although on kind of a follow-up, I wanted to actually see the Enigma machine in person, so we reached out to Susan Wilkings, who's the Director of Education at the International Museum of World War II in Natick, and she informed us that she has six Enigma machines there. And so I urge my listeners to go to this museum because they have quite a fascinating collection of World War II artifacts, including some things from the U.S. version of encryption, which use code talkers with uh, Native American languages that were often not written down and instead were passed on orally. So it was hard for other countries to kind of break these codes. And so some of those included uh, based off languages from the Navajo, the Cree, Cherokee, and other. So why was the Enigma machine so hard to decipher? What made it different than other ciphers before? Uh, I think it's a very sophisticated technology. Uh, when you think about the simplest Enigma machine, which is a three-rotor Enigma machine, it is incredibly complicated, even though it is the simplest version. So with a three-rotor Enigma machine, an Enigma operator chose from five rotors each day. He was told which three to put in and in which order in the machine, which made a difference. Uh, he also had on that machine a plug board on the front, which had 24 different plugs, and each day the arrangement of those plugs changed. Uh, then every day the starting letters on those rotors changed. And then finally, 
a six-letter sort of test message went out each day, and that was supposed to change on a daily basis. So how many Enig machines were there in World War II? And after the war, were any destroyed? And if so, why? So I don't have a precise number for you um, as to how many Enigma machines there were, but I think they were pretty widely used. You know, I think the genius of the Enigma machine is that it's it's pretty compact and, and portable, and so could be used by uh, army units out in the field. Um, they could be used on German U-boats, and so I think that they were they were pretty abundant there. Um, we have a ten work is a, a pretty massive uh, machine, uh, those were, there, there weren't that many of those. And in fact, the one we have today, it's one of only five known to exist today in the world. Um, at the end of the war, um, and, and even during the war, many of those machines got destroyed. Uh, the, the operator sort of took an oath to not let the machine fall into enemy hands. So if they thought that was going to happen, they would destroy it. Um, and in fact, we have one uh, in our gallery that looks like it's been uh, in a fire. But in fact, what happened was that the operator thought the Allies were going to get in there and take the Enigma machine, and he threw a hand grenade in it to destroy it so they wouldn't get a working Enigma machine. Wow. So did the Blitzkrieg, or in other words, the lightning board tactics, make it necessary for, like, cipher? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, so, you know, if Hitler wanted to advance very quickly with this new uh, blitzkrieg strategy, you needed a way to communicate from the commanders in the back to the officers up in the front quickly and effectively. And sort of, you know, physically moving telegrams back and forth was not going to be quick enough. And absolutely, the Enigma machine sort of filled that, filled that need. Definitely. So how did Turing break the Enigma cipher? And do you think this was the start of kind of modern computers? Well, that, that's a very complex question you just asked. I would say, I would back up from Turing, and I would say you first have to give credit to the Poles. They were actually the first to start working on breaking the Enigma um, code uh, or encryption method. They actually were able to rebuild a version of an Enigma machine themselves, and then from that, they started learning how does this machine work and how can we figure out how to break these encrypted messages. When, on the you know eve of September 1939, when they knew that the Germans were going to invade Poland, uh, they basically turned everything they had over to the British Park. They, they turned over their uh, Enigma machine that they had created and all of sort of the progress they had made on um, breaking the encryption. And so then Alan Turing sort of took it, and his folks took it from there. How did he do that? I don't have no idea. He's a genius. <laughs> I mean, I, I really have, I, can't, I couldn't explain it. Um, but do I think he, my understanding is that what he created, the bomb, you know, is was essentially the first modern computer. Was there a parallel to the Manhattan Project, which used some of the earliest computers to solve equations um, similar to what the bomb designed? Hmm. Well, I think there are, there are some parallels in that. I think it's just, you're talking, in both cases, you're talking about sort of highly sophisticated, cutting-edge sort of thinking and technology. Um, you're talking about um, 
tremendous secrecy, um, you know, in the Manhattan Project as well as uh, what was happening at Bletchley Park. You had thousands of people working on both of those projects, and, and nobody sort of leaked what was going on. You know, it did not become public, and I find that really amazing and really uh, impressive. You know, to me, the, the story of Bletchley Park didn't come out until the mid-1970s when the book Ultra, The Ultra Secret was published. Is is astounding to me, actually. So I think there are some parallels there. So in England, uh, with the Bletchley Park, three-fourths of the codebreakers were women. Yes. So what was women's role in codebreaking in the U.S.? Well, women... Um, let me speak a little bit more broadly to that, because in our collection we don't actually have we don't have artifacts on women code breakers here. Um, but women, American women, and British women actually served in all of the military branches, and I think that's a fact that few people know about. They know that women uh, sort of served on the home front; they took care of the homes while the men went away. They know that many women went to work in factories while the men again went off to fight. Um, but women also served in what were known as auxiliary services for the Army, for the Air Force, um, for the Navy, for the Marines, etc. Um, and they originally were brought in with the thought that they would just do kind of stereotypical women's work that men had been doing, so they would do the typing, they would do the clerical work, you know, they would deliver the mail, you know, that sort of thing. And as the war continued um, and more men had to be called into service, women had to take on more and more roles. So I think this is how women got into code breaking, both in England and here in the United States as well, because the men who otherwise would have done that work were sent off to fight in France. So did we have a kind of version of collection part in the U.S.? Yes, we did. Yeah. Um, it was not sort of, uh, it was in Washington, D.C., and this new book that I was talking to you about um, sort of explains all of that. But they sort of scoured the country for women who showed strength in sort of mathematics or, you know, um, you know, working with puzzles or things like that. Young women often, single women. And they recruit, went out and recruited them and brought them to D.C. to do this work. Yeah. Oh, cool. So uh, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and taking the time to answer our questions. My pleasure, and especially meeting us in person. Oh yeah, it's my pleasure, and um, I want to show, take you, and show you the enigma machines that we have here before you yes. go. <laughs> I'm writing these lit up letters down, right? And the rotor should be moving. Yeah, so the rotor's moving. So you can try that. Press really. You're gonna press pretty, like firmly. Um, yes. Is that firm enough? Yep. Now just notice, you pressed N twice, and you got an S and a J. Mm -hmm. So even when you're hitting the same key, it's encrypting each stroke, essentially. 